0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, uh, before you is a handout that we're going to be going through tonight. And in it, you will see obviously the same uh, kind of thing that we go through, a little worksheet type thing that we go through every, every night. And then after that are the scripture passages that we'll be referencing. And then on the very back... Um, page 7, is a bibliography of the relevant works that are consulted throughout this entire study. The ones that are bolded are the ones that are mainly consulted tonight. And so I want you to just take note of where those are. A lot of commentaries, particularly on Luke. Um, Some of this is taken from those commentaries. Some of it is uh, my own words, filling in some blanks that uh, needed to be filled in. So, uh, with all that being said, uh, just try to make it clear every once in a while. If I put a handout in your hand that has words on it, 99 times out of 100, I did not write that, okay? Then I try to make the bibliography very clear to to demonstrate that. I ain't trying to cheat you. I ain't trying to beguile you or trick you or anything like that, all right? I, I just want to make that clear, uh, would uh, If I didn't do that, I would feel like there would be professors giving me zeros in their mind. So, I, you know, it's just a... PTSD is what I'm still struggling with from school and seminary and all that kind of stuff. So, um, the last, uh, last week, we dealt with uh, the virgin conception. Jesus uh, being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And thinking about what all is going on as Luke tells us that story, and, uh, and in particular, paying attention to the way that he communicates that message. I, I want to reiterate, as we, we do, I uh, try to do, do quite often, that the things that are stated in the Bible are not, throw. there's no throwaway words, there's no throwaway phrases, there's nothing in there that's, that's you know, a spare, that you just, well, I couldn't come up with a better word and put it in there. Everything that is in there is with intention. And so, there are times where the biblical authors will use words in certain ways that are supposed to kind of trigger your mind to think about other things. And and Luke, I think, is doing that. So, the virgin conception of Jesus, just to review, is set in the context of creation and the coming new creation. And we see that because the angel comes to Mary and she asks him... How will I know that this is going to happen because I'm a virgin and, and you know' I'm, I'm not married and, and this kind of thing and, and the explanation that's given to her is that the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit, will overshadow her. And there's a couple of different things that are present there that are we should be our minds should be kind of triggered going back to the Old Testament of what is happening here and what that signifies. And the first is that, what's coming about in Christ, coming to earth, is the beginning, the dawning of new creation. That language of God's Spirit hovering, overshadowing, coming on top of, that, that idea is a new creation language. What is beginning is something that is uh, totally different when the Son of God assumes human nature and His the Spirit of God makes that, body holy it is uh the beginning of what is coming new um if you track that trace that all the way into into the new testament you have the the same kind of language that paul will use in the new testament of the you your body is a temple of the holy spirit uh the holy spirit is now dwelling in you that is a sign and symbol of new creation okay Uh, anyone that is in christ is a new creation um Second, though, there is that that same idea of overshadowing is not just present in the creation language, like God's Spirit hovering over the waters, but it's also, throughout the Old Testament, connected to God's presence and protecting presence, in particular, over His people. So as we see in the Psalms several times, as we saw last week in the Psalms, um, as he's w- even going in the in the cloud, his presence is there in the cloud with Israel in the wilderness. That presence is designed to be a protecting presence. So Mary has fear, and the angel is telling her, "Fear not." And the reason that she is not to fear is twofold. One, uh, the Holy Spirit is here bringing about new creation, just as old creation came about four and the second is his presence with her indicates that he is overshadowing he is protecting he's taking her within the shadow of his wings as it were so the angelic message to mary then signals that the child that is being conceived in her womb is the fulfillment of all that god has promised about the coming messiah and really the entire messianic age, the age of the Messiah, which we are still in now. So, we one pivotal passage for that is, if you remember uh, uh, Joel 2, I think it's 28 to 32, where the, um, the prophecy from Joel is basically that uh, your sons and daughters will dream dreams, the Spirit, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will dream dreams, and things like this, and um, that prophecy is stated as being fulfilled at Pentecost. So when the Spirit comes upon God's people, they begin prophesying and things like that, and it's Peter's explanation to the crowds as to why these men are not drunk, as you suppose they are, this is happening, what what was prophesied in Joel is happening. So that angel coming to Mary and telling her that this is what's going to happen that the the child is going to be filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit is doing a work here in bringing about new creation, is a sign that that entire age that he's about to inaugurate, that entire age that he's about to bring in, that the Messiah is bringing in, is actually going to impact all those who follow him. So all those who are included in Christ also have that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit there to protect, to guide, to shepherd, um, and to speak, really, to the world. So that was last week. So now we're going to actually go into the actual birth narrative now, Jesus is, is finally being born seven weeks in. It took us seven weeks to get here, okay? So if that tells you how long it's going to take us to get through the New Testament, just buckle up, all right? Um, so in the Gospels, believe it or not, it, it seems sort of strange, I think, maybe to think about this, but in the Gospels, the birth of Jesus is given a precise setting in the world. Um, it's given a time period that it takes place in where we... We know the rulers that were in place. We know about the, the uh, at least the period of time that it took place. So in Matthew, we know that it takes place near the end of Herod's reign. Herod the Great is king of Judea. So basically, uh, think about it as the entire Promised Land, just basically, okay? So Herod the Great is king of that entire area. And. Um, and it, we know in Matthew that Jesus' birth takes place somewhere near the end of that reign. So Herod's going to do something really terrible that's going to cause Jesus and his whole family to flee to Egypt. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't, heard it, hasn't read the book. Okay, So somebody, we'll get there slowly. But, uh, so he's about to do something really terrible. Well, they're going to come back after Herod dies. So we know that it's at least relatively close to the end of Herod's life. But in the Gospel of Luke we're given even a more precise time period or perhaps another historical setting, another historical marker, is that the decree, the census that is decreed, is done by Caesar Augustus, and he says that it's the census of Quirinius, or he relates it to Quirinius, the governor of Syria, that caused Mary and Joseph to actually come to Bethlehem to begin with. So it's given this uh, precise setting within the time frame of world history. So let's look at Luke 2, 1 to 3, and let's just read that. Herod has died when? Before they came, before they came to Bethlehem? No, Herod is, Herod is alive when they come to Bethlehem. Herod is dead when they come back out of Egypt and go to Nazareth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're not there. It's going to take us another 10 weeks to get there, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, go, they come out of Egypt and go to Nazareth. So we're not, we're, we're not even to Bethlehem yet, all right? So here we go. Let's get to Bethlehem. All right. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quir- Quirinius, I have the hardest time saying that name for some reason, Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Okay. On the surface, you've read that probably a billion times, and on the surface, everything is good until we actually think about this from a historical perspective, we immediately run into a historical and chronological problem in this text. And and here it is. Herod the Great dies right around 4 B.C. Okay, so we, we, we know that historically he dies around 4 B.C. So Jesus was, Jesus died before, I mean, no, Jesus died. Uh, Jesus was born in, in the before Christ era, okay? So just kind of wrap your mind around that for a second. Uh, he was born somewhere around 4 B.C. or a little bit before 4 B.C., maybe 5 B.C. All right, so Herod dies in 4. Quirinius is not made governor until 6 A.D. Are you seeing the issue? There's, you know, whatever that is, uh, 12 years or, or is it? No, it's less than that. Whatever it is, I can't. What's the number? Ten. Ten years. It's ten years. I knew that. I knew that. I'm. I'm totally. I was not. I was not. I was. Yeah. I'm. I'm an English guy. You know. Uh, yeah. I'm not a math magician. All right. Bob is like, I'm going to fail you. I'm failing you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can feel your judgment. Oh, uh, no. So, t- yeah. <laughs> well, that, that complicates matters even further. All right. So, what do you want to make it? Nine years? Are we calling it nine years? Are we all in agreement? Let's just call it something around a decade that separates the death of Herod and the reign of Quirinius. As governor, um, so how do you square this circle? Because you've got an issue here that where Luke says, let's just look at the verse again. He says in verse two, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, so that would put it at six A.D. But this was also during the time of Caesar Augustus. That's fine. Caesar Augustus reigned over both. That's that's okay. That doesn't matter. But we also know it's right at the reign of Herod. Herod ends up trying to kill the babies. Oop, I just let it slip, but you get the idea. Yeah, spoiler, I'm sorry. So, how do we fix that? Or how do, how do we even understand that, if that's what's going on here? You can read, there are no less than a trillion different opinions on how to, how to fix this, this issue, or solve this, or how to think about this, or whatever. And the worst one is, that I read today was by a guy I actually like. Uh, the worst one was, ah, uh, Luke was just confused. <laughs> not, a good, not a good answer. <laughs> not a good answer. I have a problem with that answer. All right. So, okay, so how do we do that? Well, there's many solutions that, are, that have been proposed, obviously, to this, this problem. And I'm going to be honest with you that, truthfully, there are, this is the reason why seminary exists. Okay, This is a good reason why seminary exists. This is a good when you look at like what seminaries produce and what they do and, and things like that, this is one good aspect of them, okay? You go on and you get your PhD in some sort of biblical study. And what happens is that PhD student gets under their academic advisor or whatever, and they start, thinking about all the, many th- all the many issues that they want to look at deeply, and they want to solve, they want to, they want to think about. And so they commence during their Ph.D. program to just study for like three years a particular problem. And what ends up happening in their study is they inevitably stumble across various other things where they go, that's what he was talking about. That's what, the, that's, that's what this is talking about here. They write a big book on it, it is then understood and taught in the colleges and seminaries, then it trickles down to me. So basically, we're grateful for that work. And so there's a possibility that there's things that we haven't considered as far as understanding this. So I want to put that caveat in there. But I think probably the most convincing way of understanding it, at least for me, that makes the most sense to me, is that that pivotal word in verse 2 Uh, that's translated first. So it says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria is also a word that could be translated as before. Okay? Hold on with me. You tracking with me so far? So the word that is used and translated as first could also be translated before. So, what you would get then, the resulting translation would be this was the registration before when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay? Understand? Now, I want you, does anybody have your Bible in front of you, like open to the passage? Maybe just take the Pewback Bible in front of you, or maybe you've got one in your lap. You've been depending on me to provide the verses this whole time, I guess. Um, that's fine. What you will notice in Luke two, I hope this is in our pewback Bibles. Now that I've told you to open there, in Luke two, right there at the end of that little phrase, you might notice a little. Do you notice a little note on EM? Does it have a note in the pewback Bible? It does. What does it say in that note? Yeah. So the note tells you that down at the bottom it says, "Hey, you've got an alternative translation." Now, every, every Bible is a little bit different. I didn't check the Pewback Bible before I got here, but if you notice, there will be, if you have footnotes in your Bible, typically those will be like A, B, C, D. And then if you have translation notes, they'll usually be one, two, three, four, five, okay? Depending on how many there are in a chapter or on a page. So when you find those little ones, those are really helpful because they may clarify something that is otherwise sort of ambiguous. I'll give you an example of this. In the Old Testament, when you come across a name, and therefore his name was Mehezawazah because of something, something. And you're like, I don't know why Mehezawazah should have been named. And then it'll have a little note, and it'll go down there at the bottom, and it says, this sounds like the Hebrew word for whatever. So it kind of explains the text for you a little bit. That, those little ones are helpful, and I think that actually is probably one of the best solutions to an issue like this is that Luke is not referring, he's making clear to his audience that he's not referring to the, the census when Quirinius was governor, but the one that took place before that. In other words, your mind is going to be taken to that census where Quirinius is governor. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Your mind is going to be taken there. When I talk about the census that happened, your, your first thought is going to be, oh, the Quirinius census. And I'm talking about one that took place before that. Okay everybody understand what I'm saying? That makes sense? Okay. All right. So just remember that. The help is in your Bible. It's right there. It's a little, little good a little footnote if you got the ESV. I don't know about the other translations. Um, now, one reason why I think that is the most obvious and probably the right solution to this is because if it was supposed to be translated first, this was the first registration when Corinius was governor, means what? that there is a second. He was only governor of Syria for one year. And there was not two censuses that he, since I, since I, that he did. So there's only one. So it doesn't make a ton of sense that they would say the first, because that would imply that there's a second, when there was not a second. Alright? Um, so that seems to be the, the way to go. Alright? Now, You probably are wondering, okay, why are we spending so much time on the translation of one word? All right, I get that. I understand that. And some people in this room are like, it says it, I take it, let's move on. And you're fine. And you will never, ever be upset by that. It won't ever keep you up at night. This 10 years here won't ever, you won't ever think about it again. And you just be happy until the day you die. And that's great. There's also another group that goes, wait, ten years? That's significant. Or nine years, or however long That's significant. There's a gap there, and I don't want the notion that I'm going to take this to my unbelieving friend, and I'm going to sit this down, and my unbelieving friend got their Ph.D. in Roman history, and they go, wait, Quirinius was governor in 6 A.D., and Herod died in 4 B.C. How do you solve that, Christian? There's error in your Bible. I don't want to have to sit down at the coffee table and not be able to explain that, right? So there's another group in here that does that. And sometimes you just have to go, I'm here for them. All right. <laughs> I'm going to let them listen to I happen to be one of those people. All right? <laughs> that My mind keeps working until I think through a problem. And so it's, it's significant in all seriousness as we're engaging the world. There's a, I noticed this years ago. We, I was teaching the book of Jonah. And I was teaching this to two classes. One was a class of people my age at the time in their early 30s or late 20s, and I was teaching it to another class of adults. Most of them were in their 50s and 60s, and I noticed a tremendous difference in the kinds of questions they asked about the book of Jonah. In the older class, I said, and God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and they said, great, what's next? Like, of course, that's what happened. In the younger class, I, I said the same thing, read the same verse, and immediately hands were going, so what fish was this that swallowed him? Is, there, is, there, is that possible? I mean, can a, can a fish actually swallow a human and, and live? And immediately that told me that there generationally, we have a lot of work to do as Christians. There's a lot that's being asked of us by the world when it comes to young, unbelieving people. And these were Christians. These are people that I believe in Jesus, but I don't know how I, I can imagine a fish swallowing a, a person. And, and so we have to back up and we go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Did Jesus get up from the grave? Did a dead man rise from the dead? Well, yeah, I believe that. Okay. <laughs> it matter, it, it's not a, It's not like a big leap to get to... Maybe that same God can appoint a fish, all right? Maybe you've never seen this fish before, right? <laughs> but you, there's not a fish that existed like him since or before. Yeah, is that exactly. So, uh, so anyway, um, th- there's a lot of work on our part where, especially with younger people, where it's not, it's not good enough to just say the Bible says so. That That's true. I, I agree with that. But it, it, there's still more that we can do. And, and here's the beauty of it. The Bible holds up to scrutiny. That's the reason it has been around as long as it has, is God has written this word. It, up, it, it stands the test of time. We can deliver it with confidence to the people that we're talking to. And I promise you, even if we don't know what the solutions are exactly, I, I guarantee you there, there are solutions. So, as we think about that, um, so it makes, it makes more sense uh, that it was before the Quirinius census. The reason why that's important is because um, the Quirinius census actually was a major point in Jewish history. So basically, if you said census and you were referring to a time when Caesar Augustus was on the throne, then the census you were talking about was Quirinius' census. And Quirinius' census is remarkable because it was the beginning of the Jewish revolt that eventually would lead to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The Jews did not like to be counted, especially not by a pagan you know, governor. So when Quirinius enacted a census in 6 A.D., and called all the Jews together to be counted, it created a group, uh, basically a subset of people, Jewish people, who basically were bent on rising up in in revolt uh, against Quirinius. And so um, you can see this in Acts, which is also a book written by Luke, chapter 5, verse 37. It says, After him... Judas the Galilean, different Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, that is Quirinius' census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So they were scattered, but they end up kind of working together, and eventually it creates a movement that pushes back against Rome and their rule and their counting authority and all that kind of stuff and eventually leads to the destruction of the temple because Rome has had enough in 70 A.D. We'll talk about that you know, probably 20 years from now. Um, we'll get there. But the point is that th- I think this is another important piece here. Luke, who wrote Luke, also wrote Acts. It's not that he doesn't know what the census is. And it's not that he doesn't know when the census took place, or that he was mistaken, or that he's combining two things. No, no, no. I think he's talking about a census that took place before Quirinius was governor, because your mind, Jewish person that might be reading this, is going to be drawn to that census. And I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about one that took place before. That's when Jesus was born. Okay. We good there? Any questions on that? Maybe. <laughs> above Quirinius and above Herod. Okay. Yeah. So Caesar Augustus is is Caesar of the entire Roman Empire, okay, king basically of Rome, whereas uh, Herod is king of basically what we would think of as the promised land or Israel or whatever you want to call it today. He would be underneath uh, Herod or underneath. He would be appointed by Caesar, specifically, to, to do that task, militarily. Now, we're going to get into some other things in just a little, and not today, but in the future, where Herod, when Herod dies, there's a, whole, there's a whole mess of things that happen after that. There's not one clean successor after Herod. So that's part of the reason why this, this takes place. All right. But the governor of that area is kind of appointed specifically by um, by Caesar. All right, so believe it or not, the birth itself of Jesus takes up very little in the story. We actually don't have much in terms of all the circumstances around it. Now, every time we get to the birth narrative or things like that, there's what scripture actually says, and then there's what the Hallmark Channel taught us or whatever, or <laughs> what sort of things are on the Hallmark cards and things like that, and sometimes there's some separating the two. So we're going to actually read the text uh, to see what happens. But the birth itself is told to us with, without many details as to why, uh, let's say, Mary and Joseph, the couple, stays in the stable, other than we get one little line, and it says, because there was no place for them in the end. That, that's really it. Now, the birth of Jesus obviously takes place in lowly circumstances, which is indicated obviously by the fact that there's a manger, uh, the presence of the shepherds come along. Everything is meant to kind of demonstrate that what's happening here is God is condescending to humanity, but He's doing so in the most humble means possible. All right, so let's let's look at what is told to us here in Luke chapter two, verses four to seven and on. Okay, it says. Now, all of this coincides, I want you to just think thematically and theologically about Luke. All of this coincides with exactly what Mary says after she is told that she is pregnant. Okay? Look back at Luke 1 to 55. And this is the Magnificat, we call this the Magnificat. This is Mary's praise. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now I want you to pay attention here to what she says is happening here in the birth of Christ, or the coming of Christ. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and his hol- and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength with His arm. He has scattered, here it is, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and the exalted uh, and exalted those of humble estate. Do you see what's happening there? What she's saying is happening there? The proud are being taken down a, pe- a peg, not a peg, but all the pegs, and the humble are being lifted high. This is a reversal that's taking place here. And he says, 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. So, the way that Mary is understanding what is happening here, by Him coming to a, a young, unwed, virgin, basically a teenager essentially, is that and choosing her to be the one that bears the Christ child is a dramatic reversal where those who are proud and, uh, and powerful and rich and mighty are not the ones that he is paying attention to, but the ones who are lowly and the ones who are humble and the ones who are really nothing in the world and have no claim to really anything. God is paying attention to them. So carrying on that theme, that actually goes throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, where God is paying attention to the humble and lifting the humble up from their status of depravity and humbling those who are proud and haughty and boastful. And so that that theme runs all the way throughout. And so right here at the beginning, how else would the Christ child come into the world except in the most humble of circumstances? Circumstances that... If Mary, who's obviously nine months pregnant as they're traveling to Bethlehem, probably traveling with Joseph because she's so pregnant and Joseph has to go to get counted that he doesn't want to leave her alone, that he takes her along with him, and if they had a choice as to where Christ would be born, what do you think they would choose? If they had all the money in the world, what do you think they would afford themselves? probably the best accommodations they could possibly, we've got to make sure that this goes smoothly. How does God want Christ to come into the world? Right? So Luke is presenting this uh, edict from on high that all the Roman world, particularly that in Judea and Bethlehem and all those areas, should be counted All of that is at the divine intention of God to bring all of them to Bethlehem in the most crowded of circumstances so they would be left with no other choice but to give birth to the Christ child in a stable. Amazing, isn't it? It's Really amazing. Okay. So, born in lowly circumstances. It's part of the theme of what is being accomplished here. So, the word, though, that Luke uses to describe the lodgings is not really what we would think of as an in now he does later on use the word that means an in like you may think of like a bed and breakfast or maybe a hotel or a motel or something like that um, and there is a word for that that luke later uses in his gospel when the good samaritan remember takes the finds the guy on the side of the road puts him on his, his donkey and he takes him into an inn, and he uses the actual term for a real, you know, think of like a bed and breakfast maybe, or something like that. And, uh, but he doesn't use that word here. Instead, he uses the word for something like a guest room in a private house, or perhaps even a hostel. So there is, it's a little bit ambiguous as to what it is that they went to find. And I know you've seen the cartoon Of the birth story, I know where you got the really mean innkeeper who opens the door and he says, There's no room here for you, you know, and he shuts the door. He's like a wretched Gentile, you know, and they're they're gonna walk off. I I don't think that's necessarily the story. Um, It's even possible, so we don't know for sure, but it's even possible that Mary and Joseph are going to a home of people that they know and there's no room for them in that, in that house because obviously everybody is crowding into to Bethlehem to be counted and to take part in this census. So there's a lot of people traveling. But it could be some sort of accommodation like a hostel or something like that where it's just a public place for people to sleep and stay. Nevertheless, they can't find any room there, so what do they go to? They go to uh, basically an animal room that would be, typically would be something like indoors and would be adjoined to the house. Uh, it could be everything from a proper, like kind of stable affixed to the house. It could also be, which was very common back then, a cave. Now, the reason why I highlighted this and want you to write that down is because um, if you were to go today, you were to take a trip today, which I probably wouldn't recommend going today, all right? But if you did if you did find yourself there and you were on a tour, they're going to take you to a little town of Bethlehem and they're going to take you to a little... Church that was built there in about the three to four hundreds, um, and when you go in there, it's probably the worst tourist spot to go. I'm <laughs> just being honest with you. Probably one of the worst. And you're gonna see a cave. You're gonna go into a cave, and you're gonna see a little spot, and they're gonna go, "There he is. That's where he was. He's, there was where Jesus was born." And you're like, "That's it. That's that's what it is." You know, uh, but. It's honestly plausible that it could be in a location at least like that. It's one of the few caves in that area. It couldn't be a whole lot of places that it could be, but that's one of them that it could be in. So it, it does actually fit the story that it would be in some sort of a cave where they did keep animals quite frequently. Okay, tracking is good. What's it's not what? Migdol Adar. Uh, I mean, here I don't know what you're talking about um it's possible that it was okay. so so what'm I'm, what I'm trying to say is that if you ever do find yourself over there and you look at this cave and you think nah it was a you know it was a stable it, it actually could be it, it, it could very well be, and the way that some of those sites were preserved gives at least some indication that perhaps it could be something like that. So it, it does fit with the biblical text in spite of what might be in your imagination based on the stories that you've seen and depicted in like, you know, cartoons or even birth stories or things like that. It, it's possible that it could be something like this. It was a place where animals were kept and caves were one of those things that they kept animals in. Okay. Good? Or questions on that? Anything? We're good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we'll see. <laughs> um, so this present this presentation of Jesus. So we, 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 I want to I, I want to go through those kinds of details just because it, it it helps at least for us to not only understand the biblical text maybe a little bit better, but also to take a step back and think what is happening. Theologically in this text, what is what is the author actually getting at, driving at? What is the point of this story? And the presentation of Jesus probably also presents, at least in Luke, some kind of indictment of the kings of the world, namely Caesar Augustus. So there is an edict that goes out from Caesar that counts the people. And and why would he count the people? What is his what is his goal? In doing that. It's always about money, alright? Hey, he needs information on who is here and how much they make so that I may get money. And I mean keep track of my people. Governments do this all the time, alright? So that they get the right tax money. Okay. So you have this scene where here is this person sitting in a palace making an edict that goes out across the entire world the Roman world, and they all go to be counted so that they may pay their taxes to mighty Caesar who is on high. And in the middle of that scene, here is one who is born king in a stable. Couldn't get any more of a disparity in seven verses than that right there. One king is sitting in a palace commanding all of his, his people to go be counted so that he may collect all their money. And the people that are attending to him are governors like, well, not Quirinius, but others that are carrying out his, his edicts. And here is one born in a stable who is actually king, and he is attended by shepherds. The lowest of the low in society. So there's a great disparity already. But I think there's actually also an indictment against the kings of the earth. So, uh, especially Caesar Augustus, we've got, a, a, we've got an inscription that is actually on display at the um, British Museum. And it's on page, I've preserved it for you there, on page 6. I want you to hear this, because you, you may, this may ring a bell for you. This is a description of Augustus Caesar, also called Octavian. Uh, and it's an inscription about his birthday. Here it is. Octavian or Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited by his father, Zeus. What would make that, what would make him? What would that make him? Make him son of God. Uh, And Savior of the common folk. he, He doesn't seem that common, does he, in his palace? His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good and at its prime, there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present which fills all men, so that they ought to bear the pleasing sacrifices in Him. Does that sound same seems familiar words that are in there? Let's see. Goodwill to all men, fond hopes for the future, making peace. He's a savior of the common folk. He's the Son of God. So Here is the proclamation by Mary in the Magnificat that he is truly the king of the lowly. Here is the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You you think Luke might be including that on purpose? That perhaps God even sends the angels to the shepherds to give them this particular message to say to the shepherds? You think that there's a king up there who proclaims himself a king, son of God, a savior to the common folk? Here is a savior who is Christ the Lord, who is born to you this day. Go see him. You can actually come into his palace instead of going to the location where he asked for you. Not only that, but if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, now we even have a more strict indictment because in Matthew, when Jesus is born, there is a threat to the established order and it's made explicit as these travelers come from the east and they come to the palace where Herod is in Jerusalem and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Not, where is the prince? Where is the one born heir apparent? They say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Now, remember, we talked about some weeks ago, Herod is an Idumean, meaning he, his father is Esau, an Edomite. And the Magi come in from the east, perhaps not knowing any better. They visit him there and they say, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod has been deemed king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome. He's been called that. And now here are these strangers showing up from nowhere. We saw his sign, and we've come to follow him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? What are you talking about, born king of the Jews? My wife has not had a baby. Yeah, yeah, not appointed king, not anything. He is born king already of the Jews. Let's read that in Matthew 2, 1-12. Since I feel a little Christmassy tonight. Anyway. <laughs> Matthew 2, 1-12 Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem... W-. That, that phrase has always troubled me and all Jerusalem with him. Well, you got to jump in there, don't you? Don't you just got (laughs) to... Yeah. Yeah, you, you have all of the Jews who are hearing of the one born King of the Jews and they're troubled. They're concerned. Why? Well... If you know the history of Herod, he's a tyrannical, crazy person at the end of his reign, and they are more afraid of him than they are hopeful of the Messiah, which is crazy, right? Well, we would see that as crazy now. All right, uh, it says... um, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by their own way. So obviously Mary and Joseph are in a house by this point, and Herod ascertained some sort of uh, time period that the ki- this one born king of the Jews might have been uh, been born. And, um, and so... The important part to note about that story is that Herod also perceives that the birth of Jesus is a threat to his rule. And the reason you know he perceives it as a threat to his rule is precisely because of the action he takes next, which is to send out his army across that area and kill all the babies two years of old or under. Look at verse 16. He says, within Herod, when he saw that they had been, that, they had, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So prob- it's, it's probably within two years. Maybe he's going a little bit further than the time just to be on the safe side. Who knows? But it also lines up with the babies that were born in Egypt who were also killed. So here's Jesus, the new Moses coming in. Anyway, we talked about that before. But, but the point is that he, he perceives that this Christ child that is born is a threat to the established order. So if you, if you think about the birth narrative coming together, it's all those things we said it was last week and have been saying for the last six weeks. But the birth of Christ is also a sign to those who are in authority that the end of your reign is at hand. Jesus will tell them later that he is a different kind of king. He tells the Roman authorities that his kingdom is not of this world. Remember in John 18, to 38 so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do, you, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him." So, he's very clear that my kingdom is not of this world. But, but, that doesn't mean that Herod, or that Caesar Augustus, or that whatever governor is in place at the time, or that even Pontius Pilate himself should not be afraid of the person that's standing in front of him. They understand, I think rightly, the threat that He is to all real world authority. He is the Son of God because only God Himself could save His people from their sins. That's the reason His kingdom cannot be of this world. Because His kingdom has to be a godly kingdom because only God can save His people from their sins. He is the bringer of peace because through His death He makes peace between God and man. He claims goodwill and hope to those with whom he is pleased because he alone is capable of delivering his people to his people eternal life. This right here is the threat to the established order. When it comes to uh, governance throughout time, the only real weight, to power, is in the deliverance of the sword, the ability to wield the sword. Th- that's where governmental power and authority comes from. Is, and the Bible, even the New Testament, is clear about that. That the government has the ability to wield the sword. And throughout time, that has been the inspiration that you have to obey. Right? When I was a kid, I was told, you obey." And what happens if you don't obey? I got marks to prove it. <laughs> what happens when you don't obey? That, that's what happens when the government has that authority. They carry that authority, and because of that, there is a, a natural tendency to obey. Well, what happens when one comes in and gives to all his people eternal life? Where now they no longer fear death. That's the ultimate threat to earthly authority is that the sword doesn't work on these people. So we can't get them to do what it is that we want them to do. Now on the back end of that comes the exhortation, the command to all of God's people, submit to those who are in authority over you. Right? So we don't use that power to rebel, but there is a confidence that comes to the Christian that says you have eternal life, so you don't fear death. So whatever whatever threat is delivered to you, whether it's the threat of persecution or 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 crucifixion or or death itself, we don't submit and we don't we don't uh, we don't cave. We don't give up on Christ because we believe we're committed to the notion that after this life there is life on the other side, right? So it's the ultimate threat to authority is one coming in saying, my kingdom is not of this world and I give to those who listen, who hear my voice eternal life that they may live. Now what power does earthly authority have? So that means then that all that's being communicated here in the birth of Christ is that citizenship for the Christian supersedes all earthly citizenship. So Jesus' ministry then is an all-out assault on earthly citizenship as he preaches a transitioning of citizenship from earth to heaven through repentance. So, not only do we get the threat to authority in Matthew chapter 2, Herod sees that and goes to try to kill the threat, but then after that, what do we get? We get the preaching of John the Baptist, and we get the preaching of... Of Jesus, Matthew three verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John the Baptist. Jesus comes along in four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Philippians three twenty. Going on into the New Testament, Paul says, "Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." So, the, what's happening in the the incarnation of Christ? is Jesus coming to actually take you from being an earthly citizen to being a heavenly one. And in that, He's giving you eternal life. And because He has given you eternal life, He is is removing the fear of death from all the hearts of His people. And how does that happen? Through repentance and faith. Questions? Go ahead, Sean. um there's a calendar change uh, at some point and I debated whether or not to make that a lesson, but Looking at the faces of going through one translation, one translation word, I, I felt like maybe we shouldn't include that. Uh, there's a calendar change along the way. I don't know that I could tell you right offhand all the details of it in an, in an accurate fashion, um, but I can get you that information. Yeah, it's a mon- it's a monk. It's a monk thing. Any calendar, any calendar, you can bet is going to be a monk that does it. <laughs> 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 what you, um, just oh she she asked the question the correlation between Herod killing all the babies and then the babies in egypt Um, so in that run in Matthew, uh, Herod goes and kills all the babies two years old or under all the male babies two years old or under, which is also what, uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt does during the time of Moses. Remember when Moses put in the basket and let out, um, just, uh, before that, before he goes and kills all the babies, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, go to Egypt, take, rise, take the mother and the child to Egypt. Um, you know, there's, Basically, there's people that, that are wanting to kill him. So they go to Egypt, and, it's, and Matthew says, so that it can be fulfilled what was spoken uh, in, back in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, so we know, first of all, he's associating with Jesus with Israel, who is that, that passage is about. He's coming out of Egypt. But then later on, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, uh, rise and take the child, For those who sought his life are dead. It's after Herod dies, and they're told to go back into the land. They eventually settle in Nazareth. That same phrase, those who sought your life are dead, is the same phrase that God delivers to Moses when he's out in the wilderness. So there's a connection that Matthew is demonstrating that what Jesus is here to do is not only be the, the true Israel, who's obeying God in every capacity. But he's also a new and better Moses who's coming to deliver uh, God's people truth of God's law. So Jesus, having received that message about, you know, those who sought your life are dead and relating him to Moses, then goes back, settles in Nazareth. The next time we see him, he goes through the waters. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He goes back into into the promised land, up on top of a mountain where he de- where he comments on the Mosaic law. And he starts teaching the people about the Mosaic law. So Matthew is doing a lot of things there where he's showing Jesus actually fulfilling all the things that all the Old Testament people throughout the, the first 39 books of our Bible were told to do, commanded to do, but failed to do. And instead pursued idolatry and sin and all kinds of other things. And that includes Moses as well. Um, but Jesus... Carries it through perfectly, even resisting the temptation of the dumb. Yeah. So that was a very quick overview. Of that makes sense. Any other questions? Like I said, there's nothing. There's nothing in the text that's throwaway. It's all. It's it's all very intentional. And yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad you bear with me on the translation stuff and all the technical details. It won't all be like that, but. There's some things, I think, that are in the New Testament that are just they are important to kind of lay out there, especially if you're in environments where you're, you, I'll, I'll say this, if you're ever around people uh, on a routine basis, maybe you work with them or whatever that are uh, maybe antagonistic towards the Lord, or, uh, or maybe they're just unbelieving, maybe they haven't heard, there's inevitably going to be questions that you get from them that you don't know the answer to. And it doesn't mean that just because you got those questions and you can't think of the answer, it doesn't mean that there's not answers for that. Um, So, I think the beauty of a church and just being around other Christians routinely is that when you have those questions, you can ask other people. And like, have you ever heard this question? Well, I don't know what the answer is. That Where should I look? Or whatever. You can ask, obviously, me. And if I don't know, maybe we can find the right answer, you know, to be able to address it. Just know that There are a lot of mysteries, and and maybe we don't know all the answers to everything, but that doesn't mean that there aren't answers, right? And that there aren't good responses that you can give to those things. So you don't have to be afraid, and you can, on the flip side, you can actually be very confident about the book that you got in front of you, in your lap. Um, It's proven to be true for 2,000-plus years if you go back into the Old Testament. So, So trust it. And feel free and confident to teach it. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to come together, study your word, and to think deeply about it. Uh, I pray that you would give us confidence, even with those things that we may have never asked before, questions we've never wondered about, and questions we would be happy not knowing. Uh, I pray that you would give us, even through uh, understanding those things, confidence in the word that you've put in front of us, that we know that it's true, and we know that it's, communicating to us truth that we can bank on, we can rely on, that we can trust. So we pray that you would give us that kind of confidence in your word as we deliver that to others. But I pray also that it would be a kind of confidence that does not take it for granted, but instead uh, gives it to others, shares it boldly with those we come in contact with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.